Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From America's farm-to-fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start raising kale. I think we saw it very much with COVID, how sort of our, our food system is very reliant on, on what is fundamentally a weak distribution center. It works really great move large amounts of food from a very small number of distributors. But when those distributors fall apart or those producers fall apart, there's been very little resilience. Resilience. We're hearing this word a lot during COVID. What does it mean? Resilience means the ability to recover quickly from difficulties. In people, resilience means having the coping skills to pick yourself up and move forward after hard times. But what does a resilient community look like? Think back to the start of the pandemic. Grocery store shelves were empty, no toilet paper, no eggs, no flour. There are a lot of moving parts to get food to stores. All those moving parts, the farmers growing the food, the workers that harvest it, the trucks that haul it, the warehouses that store it, the factories that make the plastic packaging, the companies that turn oats into granola bars, all these moving parts that get food from the field to our plates. It's all called the food system. And when the pandemic started and we couldn't find flour to bake bread, that's because our food system was weak. It wasn't designed to experience a disaster on that scale, so it took a long time to bounce back. And often, during disasters like a wildfire in California or a hurricane in Haiti, the news media shows the relief efforts, crews who open soup kitchens or offer shelter immediately following the disaster. But what if we didn't wait for the disaster to strike before we prepared ourselves. 
What if we designed our food systems to be resilient, to be able to recover quickly from big disasters? After all, we're living in a world where climate change is causing a rise in natural disasters from drought to wildfires. According to Oxfam, the number of climate-related disasters has tripled in the last 30 years. We need to be prepared. Thankfully, there are people already thinking about this. They're making sure that disaster-resistant crops are planted, that neighborhood warehouses are built, that local chefs are trained. These aren't the folks who typically make the news. They're the quiet, thoughtful planners. Today's guest is using breadfruit to build resilience in our food system. She'll tell us how. Alexandra Garcia has built her career working in the Global South. She's passionate about improving the lives of people and the planet. She currently serves as the chief program officer for the World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit founded by Chef Jose Andres. The organization's goal is to change the world through the power of food. Alexandra oversees programs with small farms, fisheries, and food businesses to build resilient local food systems in countries like Haiti, Honduras, and Costa Rica. Alex, welcome to Raising Kale. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. To begin, can you briefly describe the mission of World Central Kitchen? Well, um, at World Central Kitchen, we use the power of food to heal communities and strengthen economies in times of crisis and beyond. And we do that through the two arms of the organization. So the area of our work that most people are, are familiar with is our relief work, where our relief team responds to natural or man-made disasters that create a food crisis, and they come in and start cooking, and we feed people under those conditions, working with local community members and volunteers um, to try to help people through this very difficult time. Some of those have been very much in the spotlight in the news. For example, the Paradise Fires here in California a few years ago, and then there were the earthquakes and hurricanes in Haiti. You've done things around Um, COVID. We have. Uh, The relief team is is really pretty exceptional in the way that they respond to all these different scenarios. They're they're all very different. COVID in particular has been something that has made us completely sort of rethink how how we do things because it's not a localized crisis after, say, a hurricane like we had in, in Abaco and Grand Bahama after Hurricane Dorian. Um, you know, this has really been a national type event, and uh, the response we're, we're actually a fairly small team personally. So rather than us going in and doing the cooking and the, the feeding and the serving, as is traditionally the case in kind of these localized uh, emergencies, in COVID, the team has um, pivoted and we have actually gone through restaurants in local communities. So we're almost like a funnel for the funding community to come through us. And then we identify restaurants that are active in the community that can feed a nursing home or another target community. And we basically buy the restaurant meals from them and then coordinate um, how it gets distributed to, to these centers or, or homes or, or whoever the recipient organization is. So, um, yeah, we they kind of do it all. It's pretty impressive. And I can say that because I'm not part of the team. So <laughs> I'm on the other side of the house. Yeah. And so so we'll talk more about that arm in a little bit. But this is the, mm-hmm. definitely the arm that gets the media attention. And then there's this quieter side, the stuff that doesn't happen quickly. Talk about that work in the, in the arm that you oversee. 
so that's our relief work, and I oversee our resilience programs. And our resilience areas really look fundamentally at food, almost everything up to what the relief team does, right? The relief team does the final preparation and, and the delivery of food. We sort of look at everything up to that point. So how is food grown? Um, how is it prepared? Who's preparing it? Um, and can we, in instances of um, generally post-crisis scenarios, because we generally come in after the relief team, um, help take some of the skills and talents and, and resources that we have at our disposal to work in these areas after the relief team has gone. So it's not everywhere. It's not everywhere that they respond to. Um, it's not universal, but when we see something that we think we can have an impact in, then we'll, we'll consider it. But as you said, it's, it's a lot, it takes a lot more time. It's a lot slower. We don't just kind of scoop in. We really have to think and analyze and, and look at the scenario and see if we can actually have an impact or are we just going to be more noise in the food landscape, which we don't want to be. Yeah. And so you keep using a word um, that we hear a lot right now, resilience. Can you talk a little bit about what is that exactly? So for us, you know, particularly in the food landscape, but I think in general across the board, resilience is, is really the ability not to be crippled by these unfortunate events, whether it's a hurricane, an earthquake, or COVID, right? And um, and for some people, I think they're going to believe that that just means infrastructure and strong infrastructure, resilient infrastructure, um, buildings uh, in terms of, of agriculture, you know, greenhouses, farm, farm uh, stables, whatever. All of that is really important. Um, and we, we can talk later about how we sort of try to push that. But I think one of the things that don't, people don't necessarily think about in terms of resilience is the importance of networks, right? Mm. And um, whether it's through food access, food sales, uh, distribution, I think we saw it very much with COVID, how sort of our, our food system is very reliant on, on what is fundamentally a weak distribution center. It looks really great to move large amounts of food from a very small number of distributors, but when those distributors fall apart or those producers fall apart, there's been very little resilience in our in our food system here and you know, in, in, in many other places, but I think we've seen it very much in the United States. And so, you know, this idea of networks and, and food hubs and how do you build communities around food that can support each other from the very beginning, from the growing process to the, the processing process to the distribution process to the delivery process. Can you walk us through an example of this, maybe in one of the communities where you work? Sure. So um, our biggest program in this area started in Puerto Rico after Maria. And in that process of, of the relief team responding to, to Maria and, and the devastation it caused on the island, we were actually there cooking and feeding people a lot of don't realize through June 2018 and Maria was in September 2017. So over the course of that period, we, we served over 3.7 million meals on the island. Wow. And we, we try often to um, source locally. So in the process of cooking, we became familiar with a number of smallholder farmers that we were purchasing some input from. 
in terms of produce and, and some of the ingredients that we were using largely in these big paellas that we often make in, in, in the relief situations. And we became aware that they were really not getting the kind of help that they needed from any of the agencies that, that should have been sort of in place to help them. Um, even the nonprofit sector wasn't paying a lot of attention to, to this community, to the agricultural community. So we saw an opportunity to go in and start this program, um, our food producer network, where we support um, farmers and now fishers and, and food producers with grants to help them build infrastructure to recover some of the capacity that they lost during the event. So in this case, Maria. So it could be a greenhouse rebuilding, um, clearing a road so they can get back access to the farm, um, you know, replacing a tractor, whatever they lost. Because and sometimes it sounds like this ends up, you know, where in the ideal circumstance, a government or a nonprofit entity is coming in and sort of saving the day. But at, in reality, a lot of times this is falling on those local businesses to to pick themselves back up and have the resources and the and the infrastructure Absolutely. to do so. Absolutely. And I think it's it's not just true in, in sort of the Caribbean and Central America where our work is, but here too, you know, financing and, and access to capital for farmers and, and the agricultural sector is very, very tight. And many of these farms really operate on, on almost no margin whatsoever. Um, and the same is true for, for small scale fishers and, and which we saw dramatically in after Dorian, right? I mean, obviously, fish protein is a very important part of the food system. So. Um, you know, to make a long story short, over the course of the last three years in Puerto Rico, and now we've expanded to the USBI, the Bahamas, and we're in the process of expanding to Guatemala right now, we've built up this community. Every six months, we add more producers to our network through an, another round of grants. And slowly but surely, they have started kind of supporting each other and working together as a community. So they're looking for opportunities um, to, uh, you know, pitch a product together to, to a distributor potentially, or we have two farmers from Puerto Rico who came, who we didn't even realize, even though we, we, we try to look very closely where people come from, that they were fundamentally neighbors and they met at the orientation. Mm-hmm. And within three months, not only to become best friends, but, you know, they were helping each other get to market. So um, one week, one was driving, the next week, the other one's driving, or they're sharing, you know, equipment. And just those little pieces of collaboration and community building can make huge differences in their capacity for production, their capacity to find new markets, to, to find new sales outlets. So that's really where we've been focused on this. And that's why we, we actually renamed the program this year our food producer network, because we do believe that, that building that network capacity across food systems is, is key to resilience, um, income generation, livelihood, um, and, and really food security. Ultimately, what we're trying to do is make sure that these places grow more local food so that they are less dependent on the outside world, especially island economies. It's really important that we help Caribbean islands become a little, have more food sovereignty because they're extremely dependent right now on food imports. 
Absolutely. So that was sort of the initial impetus um, for the program. It's amazing that type of work and being able to think so deeply and so long term because these, you know, they're not quick solutions and these disasters, um, you know, they throw all systems out of whack. And so the stronger the system, uh, the stronger the disaster response is what it sounds like. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the more quickly I think communities, individuals, businesses, nonprofits um, can recover, right? If the underlying food system is um, thriving and responsive and resilient, then people can come back faster from these disasters and, and not, and hopefully the impact is diminished. That's the amazing. Next time. Yeah. And, and talk about the role of women because women really are important in these communities in terms of this resilience building. So t- talk about uh, women and entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we have some beautiful stories. Uh, you know, when we first designed the program, we really were thinking we're going to have to really make a space for women-owned businesses. So one of our, you know, key metrics is going to be in the pool of, of applicants that we approve we're going to set aside some specifically for women-owned businesses because we think that's important. But what ended up happening is we didn't have to do that because just naturally some of the strongest proposals and some of the strongest businesses that we saw were led by women or co-led by women, right? A lot of farms are family farms, so there's a couple in place. But the women are just as important in the activities of the farm and the decisions that are made around running that farm as a business and, and their sales and, and their marketing and the growing. And so we sort of ended up taking that piece off the table of, of having to make sure it happened because it was just happening on its own. Um, Love we're that. Seeing it, yeah. I mean, it's great, right? When you don't have to make accommodations because it's just happening on its own but it, it really is amazing and in the, in the food businesses I would say our biggest success story is a woman-led business in Puerto Rico and we have continued to invest in her because she's just really having an incredible impact on, on sort of her community and her her business and her partnerships and and other farms tell us about her what's what's her story so her name is Marisol, and her husband is Jesus, but she's really the driving force behind this. And she started um, a company that produces bread, fruit, flour. Um, it started really just as pancake mix, but now they're doing lots of other products where um, bread, fruit is a superfood. It grows like crazy in Puerto Rico. It, it's actually a very resilient, hurricane-resilient crop. So... Um, you know, part of what we talk about resilience is like crop planting that, you know, roots and, and plants that are indigenous to these areas that tend to be more resistant to hurricane damage and being, you know, uprooted and whatever. But anyway, so she has, has grown this company. The first um, thing that we helped her with was um, a grinder for her flour because she was grinding it all by hand pretty much (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know with a big wheel or I don't know how she was doing it World Central Kitchen helped Marisol with a micro loan to purchase a walk-in cooler for her breadfruit the problem with breadfruit is it has a fairly short shelf life after it's picked it's only three four days and part of her model that we loved initially is that she is not only growing breadfruit on her farm but she is very deliberately 
putting the word out there that she wants to buy from other local farms. And breadfruit can grow on the, the side of a farm. It doesn't have to be the main crop. So she's creating additional revenue for her for farm neighbors because um, they can put this in. It grows pretty quickly. In three years, it's productive. Mm. She's also um, helped uh, a couple of schools in her community uh, plant breadfruit trees on the property. And she buys the breadfruit as as she would from anybody else. And then that um, income for the school goes into their uh, lunch program um, and to continue. And the kids are learning how to, to grow breadfruit and whatever. So, you know, there's this beautiful community support component to her effort that, that we love. And she just keeps growing. And she came to us last year and said, listen, I'm, I'm in Walmart now. Wow. I have my products all over the place, but I with only three to four days of shelf life, I can't, all the farmers are coming to me at the same time trying to sell me breadfruit and I just don't have enough space. Mm. So we've now helped her build a very large um, walk-in cooler space where so she can buy from, from farmers as they just show up on her driveway and say, I have, you know, a bed full, a truck bed full of, uh, of breadfruit. Do you want to buy it? And so she can do that and she can stock up. So um, it's really, you know, it started as one uh, grinder, but she's really smart and um, and a great spokesperson for her community and for her product. And she has a beautiful label. It's called uh, the product is called Amasad is her is her company name, and she's diversifying into other product lines. And it's it's really a remarkable success story. So we're we're excited to, to help her and see where it's going to go. We're hoping very soon we'll be able to buy it here in the U.S. It's kind of all over in Puerto Rico. I was so, wondering um, about that. And I also yeah. would love to know, describe breadfruit. I don't think I've ever experienced one. Um, so breadfruit is, uh, it looks like, I mean, I don't know. It's a big round fruit. It's uh, at maturity. They're maybe like a foot long. So they're, they're, they're quite big. <laughs> In, um, in Puerto Rico, people fry it a lot, which is not the best way to produce it. But if you have yuca fries, like bread, oh. like breadfruit flies are even better, right? <laughs> um, and uh, it, it grinds really well into this flour. Um, so it really is, it, it's like a, almost like a root vegetable, but it's, 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 it's a fruit. And then um, what do they use the flour, the, the, the grain for, the flour that they make? Um, so she's made it into um, the first product that she was doing when we started was a pancake mix. So, you know, sort of add water and, and pancake, but it's gluten free. It's like a super nutrient food. It's, it's great, you know, for diets and whatever. Um, and it's delicious. It has this really lovely kind of nutty flavor. And now she's making, I believe, I, she tested us a, a sample of um, like a porridge, almost like an, a a creamy oatmeal. It's, it's more of a Latin thing, but it's, it's a breakfast uh, cream, almost like cream of wheat, but even smoother. Um, and, I'm in. I want to. I want to yeah, really try this. It's, a, <laughs> it's Sounds... really great. And flour to make bread with, I think, is what she's going to next. So yeah, it's a very versatile food, and quite frankly, across the Caribbean, there's a couple of organizations, nonprofits, that are really pushing for growing breadfruit because it is resilient. It, it is a superfood. It, it's native, um, and uh, it's uh, it's just a great product. Well, and talk a little bit more about this because this 
kind of leads us to the conversation of the environment and the planet. And, um, you know, we're seeing this rise in natural disasters due to climate change. And, you know, so talk about the how the environment and the planet fits into your work and, and why those factors also play a role. Sure. So for us, um, every um, project that we support, we really look for entities that are using, it's hard to say organic, but eco-agrological practices, right? That are, that are not using pesticides, that are, that are really taking their soil health, their environment into consideration. And it's, it's, it's just necessary. We're going to have a major food problem if we continue to, um, you know, damage the earth, especially soil through some of the practices that are used at, used at a large scale. So most of these um, farms are, are, you know, I would say small to medium. It also depends where you are, but that definition is different depending where you are in the world. But we have to prove that these practices can work at this level so they can be scaled. Um, using technology, I mean, I think technology is our friend in this, right? But um, it, we, we think it's absolutely critical that, it, what we support not be harmful to to the world as a whole, and um, and also that you know it builds resilience. Again, I mean there there's that word right mm-hmm. that if you you know droughts are going to be coming, so building smart, reliable water catchment systems that don't cost a fortune and don't rely on pumped in water, um, but that really sort of use what what's there and rain and, and you know and, and, and build it on site warming waters is is impacting fish catches mm-hmm. so um fisheries have to be better managed so that as a whole we're we're trying to create more you know a more resilient ocean um through through fisheries and are these some practices that that your team is learning from, say, one farmer or fisher on the ground and then sort of uh, using that knowledge to train, to sort of scale the training? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we are not, we are not the, the experts in these, in these places or in these practices, right? But we're pretty good at networking and finding the people who, who are. So um, getting getting their advice, their guidance, knowing what we should be asking people, are you doing, how do we create, we, you know, there's been silver linings from COVID, right? I mean, COVID's been awful, but there are some silver linings. It forced us to really take our capacity building program, um, which up until March was very much in person. And we invited our, our, our producers to come to workshops and we would have like one a month and, you know, and, and they were great. And we're still going to have in-person ones, but now we have virtual ones. Mm-hmm. And we're just bringing in experts from all over the place. And we're, we have a capacity for 500 um, attendees and we don't have that many uh, producers in our network yet. Um, so we're opening it up to the communities and, and anyone who wants to come in and who gets on our thing is, is welcome. And we have workshops in, in business skills, marketing, finance, you know, accounting and sort of a whole wide spectrum of, of, techni- of uh, practices like that, but also technical skills. So we have some that are focused on fisheries where we bring in fisheries experts. 
um, to, to talk about best practices and what should be done. And, you know, it's different in the Bahamas than it is in Puerto Rico. I mean, many things are similar, but there are obviously some, some contextual, some site-specific regulations, activities that, that people need to be aware of. Um, the fish, the fisheries are very different. What they're catching, you know, at scale is very different. Yeah. So um, we're just trying to open the door to opportunities to people. Um, but we're not trying to be the experts because there's, there's a lot of really good people out there doing a really good work. And all we need to do is connect them with, with each other or with our producers. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Sure. That's fantastic. I love this model. Another area that I want to touch on is hunger relief. Uh, we're just seeing growing rates of food and nutrition insecurity, not just abroad, but even here at home in America. And, you know, what are some of the lessons that your nonprofit is bringing from the global South to draw upon during this crisis here in America? Um, yeah, you know, I, this is a tough question. Um, I think it's a very uh, high level. You know, we need to learn to do more with less. And I think in the global South there, you know, there, there are many less resources, generally speaking, um, and they, and they manage to make it work. Right. And it's, it's not an excessive lifestyle or, um, and certainly they're, they're, they're missing some, some key livelihood aspects, but, um, we, we can do more with less and, and we need to learn how to do that. And I think, you know, especially we look at things like climate change, um, which has impacted the global stuff already. I think even, I mean, it's hard to say this now because you look at these fires out west that we're experiencing right now, and mm. there's clearly a tie, and at least my mind, um, to climate change and, and sort of the weather patterns that we've seen out, out west. But um, you know, the global south has been feeling these these impacts for quite a bit longer, and, and many of the problems that we see around, I think, immigration out of Central America, um, there's definitely part that is due, you know, as we hear from gangs and, and, and violence and, and women trying to, and families trying to escape that reality, but there's also a significant part of that migration that's happening because um, their farms are just not productive. These are agricultural communities, they're poor agricultural communities, and they're just not able to make their farms work anymore and sustain. And, um, you know, if we're not careful, we're, we're going to get to something like that. It's going to be harder and harder to produce here. So I think we need to really, um, I don't know that there's actual technology lessons learned, although there are some really great, I think, technologies happening that are coming out of, of, of the global south. Um, but I think it's more of a mindset. We need to, to be a little bit more careful with our resources. It paints a really important picture of how all of these things are so interconnected. Every every human decision, every decision for the planet, um, they just are all sort of colliding right now. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Going down this road, uh, a little bit... Uh, a little depressing, but I, I think it's really important for people to begin to understand. So what, what is the hardest part of this work for you? What do you wish people understood? Um, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, 
I think you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning, right? Um, and I think this is something particular of, of rural central kitchen that we have this relief team that's sort of, you know, every day they're doing their meal counts. Every day there's like videos of people who are so happy that, you know, they're there on the ground and sort of the gratification is immediate, right? Mm-hmm. On our side, we're talking a year or two before we see the outcomes of our impact, um, yeah. the impact of our work. And that's sort of the, that's what you agree to when you kind of think about going into international development work and, or, or any kind of community development work. I mean, these are, these are not quick solution problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's par for the course. But, and I've never really sort of felt it so much in my career until here when it's like you're looking at the other side of the house. It's like, darn, I wish I had, you know, every day something like really fabulous that I could, like a number I could throw out there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, truthfully, I mean, this is not a hardship, right? I, I know we're having an impact. And, and when we do see those stories, they're incredibly powerful and, and really meaningful. Um, and, and so, you know, it's fine. I would say the other thing, and again, I think this is, is, is true just of, of this kind of work in general. Um, and maybe alludes a little bit to what I was saying before about how we need to learn how to do um, more with less um, is really in travel and, and going abroad is really seeing how little other countries have and other communities have and, and women around the world and, and how many challenges um, they have to overcome in in many cases. And, you know, as a mother myself and, and as a um, someone who tries to, to uh, to add value to to my community, you know, you see where, you know, my cup overflows, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really, um, I, I, we're so fortunate. And um, so it's humbling. And it's, it's sometimes very difficult talking through a, um, some of these communities that, you know, really are, are incredibly, incredibly poor with no running water and, you know, um, but they're also beautiful and, and, and humbling and people are kind and they're grateful for everything that they get. And, you know, I think there's a lesson in that too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I a hundred percent agree with, you know, your perspective on, uh, you know, this, this long-term upstream work that, you know, is so critical, not just in the moment of disaster, but leading up to disaster, pulling out of that disaster. And, and, you know, again, this word resilience that keeps uh, coming back around. So uh, really important that you are doing this work and we're, we're grateful that you are. Um, On the, on the other side of this, what's the most rewarding part of your work? And maybe you could share another story um, that helps us paint a picture of success. Sure. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the most rewarding thing is to see that something you've been working on has, has helped somebody, right, or a community. And um, I'd share two stories with you. Um, one is of a farm in the northwestern part of Puerto Rico um, called Moica Farms. The, the couple that run it are Moises. Um, and Carla, his wife, and uh, they're just a lovely young couple, and, and their farm was truly completely devastated by Maria. Um, 
it's on the, the northwest side and basically the, the farm was under seawater for I think like three or four days and mm. um, you know from the from the water coming in and uh, so um, but there was just something about them and we, we try to go visit the farms before we before we accept them into the program and, and I'd happen to go I'm here I don't get to visit all of them the team on the ground does but I'd gone and I was like, God, I just love this young couple. And uh, so it was a little bit of a leap of faith uh, because really there was like nothing on the farm. It was completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And um, to watch the progress over the last three years, I mean, he has planted the most beautiful orchard of passion fruit trees. And he's completely, you know, we we had some excess solar panels that were distributed and he was so happy last time I went, he showed me he himself had sort of connected this whole thing. He put his whole house and his, and his greenhouse on, on, on solar power. But, you know, he literally did every connection, every piece himself. It's stuff that he got from the hardware store. I don't know how he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it is this beautiful story of resilience and this young family with, with two children who, you know, happened to both have some, some, some disabilities. Um, that, that, you know, and that's, that's not really relevant, but it is, right? Because they're, they're, they're overcoming so much mm. and they're just building this beautiful farm that um, is producing this incredible passion fruit. Love and uh, yeah, it's really beautiful. And then one of the things that we haven't, you know, that's, that's sort of in the food production space. I, I'd mentioned that you know, we look at other parts of, of food uh, workforce development. We have a, a culinary school in Haiti. Um, and we also look at clean cooking, which is uh, an issue mm-hmm. that Jose, Chef Jose Andres, our founder, is, is very passionate about. And that really looks at um, how, how food is cooked in, in the developing world. Um, you know, almost 3 billion people still eat every meal that's been cooked on a freestone fire or with charcoal and, and wood. Mm-hmm. And our program looks to help schools and, and institutions in Haiti, and we're expanding to Guatemala right now, convert from cooking with charcoal um, to cooking with gas, yeah. uh, liquid propane gas, mm-hmm. which is so much cleaner and so much better for the women who are cooking According to the World Health Organization, firewood or charcoal are commonly used for daily cooking by 3 billion people living in the developing world. As a result, 4.3 million people die from smoke-induced diseases every year, mostly women and young children. You know, I could only be there like three minutes and my eyes were just hurting and burning and the smoke is just awful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we went to a school that we had already helped and and done the project and the women are cooking in a real kitchen at you know they're not bent over because they're cooking on a gas stove that um is at counter height right which we take for so so much for granted you don't think about the the difference there um with running water in the kitchen and no smoke and you know their clothes are clean because they don't have soot all over them and the walls are clean because there isn't soot all over and they were just you know in there cooking away (laughs) making food for these kids and you know in a healthy environment and that was you know wow i'm so happy we've done this and yet there's so much more to do um but seeing that really 
stark difference of the before and after, it was very powerful for me. Amazing stories and amazing work. Um, how can people help? Tell us what to do. Well, um, you know, there's always that donate button. Absolutely. <laughs> of course, we, we appreciate. Follow us at, on Twitter or, or Instagram at WC Kitchen um, is our handle. And uh, let other people know. I mean, even just awareness, um, spread the word, not so much just of our work, but, you know, on the relief side that if there's a commuting crisis, maybe we can help. Um, although we're, I think we're doing a pretty good job of identifying those, but you never know. Um, you know, we are there. Um, educate yourselves about what food systems need to look like and what you can do in your own community to help strengthen the, the local food system. Um, and, uh, and just be part of, of, the world and the community of, of, of food. Absolutely. And we will post those um, social media handles on our website as well so folks can follow along. And One more thing. So when the world opens up again uh, and uh, people can travel, we actually have a volunteer program everywhere that we run Food Producer Network. So Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, Bahamas, and, and soon Guatemala. And, uh, and we encourage visitors to those places to contact us and if they would like to come and volunteer for a day on a farm, um, we can make that happen and they can come help the farm and farmers are incredibly grateful for it and sort of experience um, maybe something that they wouldn't otherwise in a part of the place that they may not otherwise go. So um, look for that when when we can all hopefully travel and see each other again. That sounds amazing. I'm definitely signing up to go volunteer (laughs) to make bread flour. (laughs) (laughs) well uh, wonderful to have you alex thank you so much for taking time and keep raising kale thank you we will try you too now you know what breadfruit is and how alex and her team are helping build resilience in food systems around the world these communities will be able to bounce back more quickly if disaster strikes thank you for listening if you like what you hear please subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends Follow us on social media. Are you a kale raiser? We love discovering new stories of raising kale in communities across America. Share your story with us by texting kale to 73389 or by visiting us at raisingkale.com. I have more fun news to share. I wrote a book and it goes on sale next week. Food Anatomy Activities for Kids is a food science book filled with recipes and experiments for kids to learn hands-on. They'll learn about osmosis by making salt-cured egg yolks and about fermentation by making pickle brine. Find the book on Amazon now. Links are also on our website. In our next episode, you'll find out what happens when my kale-raising guest starts cooking with her mother. She's built a movement while spending time with her mom, learning about her cultural roots in the kitchen. You're going to love the connection between Lisa and her mom. It will leave you hungry for food and hungry for more. Next week on Raising Kale.